This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Welcome to the Circuit of Success, and thank you for joining me. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait, but I believe the opposite. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude, a great belief system, and action every single day. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline, and most importantly, a vision, that's when greatness happens. Now let's dive right in to this week's guest. Welcome to the Circuit of Success Podcast. I am your host, Brett Gilliland, and I am excited today. We have Dr. Aaron Shannon uh, in the studio with us today. Well, actually, the studio is her house today, so we're excited to be here. I appreciate you being in the studio today. How are you doing today, Aaron? I'm good. Thanks for coming over, and uh, I'm happy to be on your show. I'm excited about today. Absolutely. We're excited to have you. So I, like in every show, I always uh, have our guests go back and really you know, go back as far as you want in your life and really tell us what's made you the woman you are today. And and if I may, I think it's something like 22 degrees that you have, degrees and and all sorts of stuff, 27, something like that. And so very, very smart woman, and I'm excited to uh, have you tell your story today. So why don't you go back as far as you want and share your story? Well, I think um, I would have to start with my parents, I, I was born and raised in St. Louis, and my last name might be familiar to people. My dad's Mike Shannon of the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, and so I was born into a, a family of athletics, and, and my uh, brothers and sisters were all athletes. I'm the youngest of six. You know, I think St. Louisans have probably been pretty familiar with my dad and the kind of guy he is, and he's very much what he appears to be. He's um, old school and, um, you know, take it or leave it, that's what he is. So that's pretty much how we were raised. My mom is pretty much the exact opposite of my dad as far as, as my dad was hard. She was soft and very kind and loving. And we were born and raised to be hardworking. Um, just because we had the last name, we still had to be our own person and, and work hard and be kind to everybody. So um, I grew up with a really strong, I think, work ethic. Uh, Each one of us six kids are very different in what our passions are. So we all ended up with very different jobs. One of us is a lawyer, one of us is a paramedic firefighter, my sister Pat is a businesswoman. So um, we're all very different and I think that speaks to the fact that our parents raised us to be our own person although we do all have the same very strong work ethic and morals and values. So um, I attribute a lot of who I am and how I am to the way I was raised. Went off to college, went to California, always had wanted to go there. My brother Tim was a football player at USC. I always had imagined myself going to the West Coast for school. So when I got out there, I just went to school and and I think for the first time thought of myself as smart because other people told me I was smart. But uh, in my head, I just never knew of anything besides myself being an athlete. So I think probably that was my first uh, foray into who am I, what am I, and maybe a bit of an identity crisis and maybe even a little bit of an existential crisis, I think. At one point, one of my professors just so happened to be um, an Adlerian psychologist who studied right under Sigmund Freud. And she, I guess, recognized this in me. And as a 
young student took me over to England to this conference. And at this conference, I think that's probably the first time I realized maybe I want to do this because it's very fascinating and I could probably help a lot of people. So that's when I probably started seriously thinking of doing it. And then once I started to seriously consider it, it was pretty easy for me to turn that 100% focus that I used to use in my athletics into, okay, now I know what I want to do. Now I'm going to go 110%. So once I did that, I finished college about a year and a half early. I applied for a master's degree. I finished that a year early, applied for a doctorate, finished that a year early. I finished all my training in my doctoral degrees out in California, and I really wanted to focus on the brain, and I think that was another um, maybe Midwestern trait of mine. I wanted to study things in the brain, and I wanted to basically point to the area in the brain that was either misshapen or misfunctioning because I wanted to say, here, let me prove it to you. I don't want to talk about theory. I don't want to discuss it or talk about why this might be true. I want to show you on an MRI and prove it to you beyond the shadow of a doubt. Came back to St. Louis and found a postdoctoral fellowship opportunity at WashU. They created a dual fellowship for me, which was amazing, in the departments of psychiatry and genetics where I was able to study uh, the brains of schizophrenics and their first degree relative with a pretty amazing results and opportunities there. And, um, and then I got to stay back here in St. Louis. So that was kind of my my path. So when you think about what you do today, obviously you work with a lot of uh, Major League Baseball players, you work with a lot of NFL stars, uh, obviously without naming names, but what are some of the things you see today, even before we started recording, we were talking about the injuries and, and people not playing as much in sports, and I want to dive into the success of all those people in a, in a little bit and what you've done, but kind of give us the lowdown of what's going on in sports today and what are you seeing with concussions and injuries and, you know, as a father of four boys and, and somebody that watches the kids play today and lots of injuries with kids, what are you seeing out there in the sports world today? I've found that athletes are a fascinating group of people to work with because they're extremely driven. They're just looking for what works and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get back out there one more day. And even though many of the newer studies that have come out have shown us things that are very frightening as far as concussion and um, some of the I would say the splashier things that have made their way to the headlines. If you ask many of the athletes, would they go back and do it all again? They'll tell you, yes, they would. They would do it all again. And that speaks to the passion and the drive and the love they have for their sport. So it's up to many of us that help care for them, both the athletes that are currently in their sport, the young children coming up through their sports, and the guys that are retired and have played all those years that are maybe suffering from the symptoms of those diseases that we're finding are so prevalent to find ways to best care for them and find the best practices to both treat current problems and prevent the problems from continuing. Absolutely. And so when you think of that, 
I know some of the things you focus on, I, I looked at were unwanted habits and patterns. I mean, I think, so take it from the sports world into the boardroom or in the business world, whatever our listeners do for a living, what do you find, how do, how do people get out of that, you know, negative self-talk and, and maybe you don't work on that stuff as much, but how do they get out of those unwanted pa- uh, patterns? First, you have to identify them. And I think a lot of what we do in our daily life is distract ourselves from the stuff we're doing wrong. We stay busy all day long and 90% of the stuff we're doing is ridiculous. 90% of the stuff we're doing is ineffective and inefficient. We're very poor regulators of our time and we're very good at fooling ourselves into thinking that we're excellent regulators at our time. We're terrible regulators of our time. We sleep poorly, we eat poorly, we are very unconscious of our consciousness. So I think the most important thing to do is to become aware of what you're doing. That is a Herculean task. Most of us in the West don't know what we're doing because we don't know what we're thinking about. If you can become aware of your thoughts, you will be astonished at how terrible you are when you talk to yourself. You would not speak to another human being the way you speak to yourself. If you realize that every thought you think, every cell in your body hears as a command, you would clean up your thoughts rapidly. So when you when you think that way, so it's not just, oh, I have negative thoughts and it's bad for me wanting to be you know, a driven person. I mean, it literally affects our body, our cells, everything. There's something called muscle testing, and you can look it up online, and you can think it's BS and and ridiculous. It is not. And if you look at it from a psychoneurological level, and if you look at it psychoneuroimmunology, look that word up. Uh, That word is really the wave of medicine in the future of medicine, and it talks about how your thoughts drive your health and your health is everything. If you don't have your health, you're toast, right? I think we all can pretty much agree on that. But if you don't understand the fact that your mind runs the show, your mind is housed in your brain more or less, if you don't have your mind right, ain't nothing right. So if your mind is telling the rest of your body and the rest of your cells that you're sick, or you're an idiot, or you're fat, or this is not gonna work, or money's the root of all evil, or you're not getting enough sleep, or this'll never happen, or my plans never work out right. Even if you're not telling yourself that consciously, if unconsciously or subconsciously you believe those things, and those were taught to you before you were age six or seven when a lot of your subconscious beliefs are concretized in your system, how are you ever gonna get ahead in life? If you really think money is the root of all evil, you will figure out a way to never make more than X amount because you think people that make over X amount are somehow evil. And you're a good person. Right. So why would you ever make more than that amount of money? So if you find yourself butting up against X amount of money and never making more than that amount, I guarantee you there is a subconscious belief in there and there is no way that you're going to make more than that amount of money until you figure out a way to get rid of that subconscious belief. 
So you got to go in and figure out where that subconscious belief is stuck and release it. Same way with health, same way with relationships. When you find a pattern in your life, for whatever reason, no matter what you consciously do, you cannot break this pattern. There is a subconscious belief somewhere stuck in there that is continuing to butt up against that same belief system that you, for some reason, cannot break until you find that unconscious lock and open it with a key. That's great. I mean, that's very profound and... and, uh... I, I love the deep thoughts that you have there. It's kind of like Earl Nightingale's book, The Strangest Secret. I don't know if you've ever read that or not, but yes. you become what you think about. And so we're, we're doing exactly that. So you are one of 50 people in the world that is uh, trained on, I'm sure I'm going to butcher what it's called, but uh, the, the oh. holographic or holographic memory resolution. And that was used after 9-11. Tell us a little bit about that. So this is actually my very favorite technique and it's a it's a body-based technique and it's very similar to what we just spoke about it's finding where trauma is locked in the body in a cellular way and it's releasing that trauma and recoding it if you take something out you got to put something back in if you've got a trauma stored in your hamstrings for example and for some reason no matter what you do you keep pulling this hamstring you go into the hamstring and you find out what's stored there and it might be something from when you were two years old stored there and frequently things will come up i will have a professional athlete he'll come in Nobody can figure out what's wrong with those hamstrings. Everything will get fixed. There'll be nerve conductance studies. He'll be flown all over the world. There's nothing wrong physically with the hamstring. That's a $90 million hamstring. It's fine. You go into a semi-hypnotic state. You're not completely hypnotized. You're very, very relaxed, but we're speaking back and forth. We go into the hamstrings. The athlete and I are still talking. An image comes up. A memory comes up. And this memory can be completely unrelated to the sport. Maybe it's related, maybe it's not. Maybe we go through several memories, but we get down to one. And that one memory will be traumatic in nature. And when I say traumatic, it might not be a terrible trauma like somebody got shot. It could be something that seems relatively innocuous. Like I wanted a cookie and my mom didn't notice me and I cried and went to my room. But for whatever reason, it gets stored. It gets locked down in the cellular or muscular tissue in that area, and it gets encoded. We somehow figure out a way to release it. There's a process we go through. It takes maybe 10 minutes. It might take two hours. We get it released. We recode it in a certain way. We recode it with a different emotional content. It's driven by the client. The client drives it. They recode it the way they want it recoded. They have control over it. They remember the process. And when they come out of the procedure, and then it, they, we might go to another spot. The body drives it. So there might be a map. And the different memories that come up might have a similar connotation or flavor. They might all be abandonment memories. They might all be... Um, sexual abuse memories, they might all be neglect, uh, or they might all be very different. They might all come from one side of the family. They might all be from a certain age frame. The body will map out this pattern. We will have to go through it as the body gives it to us, and then when the body's done, it's done. And it will, and you'll say, okay, let's scan the body again. Do you have any, does body have anything else to tell us? And when the body says, nope, done, the patient knows exactly what they're doing. The body will tell you, nope, it's done. And so you never know how long this kind of a session will take. It'll always, it always has to be the last session of the day. 
because it literally could take 45 minutes. It could take six hours. You have no clue how long it will take. And you can't disrupt it. It's, you can't come up in the middle of it and say, okay, well, I got to go. My next patient's here. And then when you're finished, you're finished. Usually you sleep like a rock. You wake up the next morning and you are shocked at the amount of energy you have. And you're shocked at the amount of energy you have for the next couple weeks because you are amazed by the contrast because your body has been using your whole life all of this energy stored up to hold on to these traumas. And for the first time in your life, you've got all this energy release that you haven't had forever because it's been holding these traumas. And it finally gets to flow free. You go back and you realize, I'm not feeling tight or hurt or pain in these areas. And I've literally had patients referred to me prior to surgeries that will go back and get their pre-surgical scan and have to get scanned the other side because nurses will say, we must have scanned the wrong side. Hmm. They'll go back and scan the other side. I can't explain it with Western medicine. You can maybe explain it a little bit with quantum physics, but it is what it is. That is unbelievable. And I've never heard anything like that. It is literally unbelievable, as you just said. It is unbelievable. The inventor of that is, his name is Brent Baum, and you can go online and research it. It's called holographic memory resolution. It takes about two or three years to get trained in it, and it is by far the most powerful healing modality I've ever used. I can't speak more highly of it. We'll definitely check that out. Thanks for sharing that. So when you think about the psychology and you think about peak performance uh, on the field or off the field in the boardroom, whatever it may be, what are some of the things that people driving down the road today or they're working out, they're listening to this, what do they need to be doing to get to peak performance in the business world? I think the business world, as well as the sports world, there's a lot of correlations uh, between the two. But I think the most important thing that you can do when you want to revamp or refocus is to become aware of your metacognition or become aware of your thinking. And if you can be mindful of your mind and be aware of your thoughts and then go a step further and consciously choose to think thoughts that move you closer to your goal, if you have a goal and you choose to only put the thoughts in your head that move you closer to that goal, and then even more importantly than that, if you can put yourself in the emotional state of feeling as if you've already achieved that goal, get yourself emotionally aware of how you feel in the moment, and then imagine yourself to be in the state of how would I feel if I had already achieved the goal that I am setting out to achieve. And it's it feels like daydreaming, but it's very much a law of attraction kind of thing. I don't know if you've heard of the law of attraction, but I'm a huge believer in that. And I would say almost all of the elite athletes that I am aware of, either if I treat them or just I know of them, it's how they've gotten to where they are. I think the law of attraction, the way I would say it is how we started this before we recorded, you said, how do we know each other again? And I said, "I, I don't really know. But I, but we're here, right? It just it just happens. Exactly. Things just happen. That's and I would say that's how like I don't advertise. I would say most of the people that come to see me, that's how they find me. And I'll ask them like, "How did you find me?" And they'll say, "Well, I don't know. I just like was looking online and I saw your I saw you and I was like, I have to come see her and I don't even know why." Those kind of strange synergistic things 
are very similar to law of attraction. Yep. If you need to meet the right people and they kind of just call out of the blue, how does that happen? Right. It's not coincidence. It's something different. It might seem like you're getting too metaphysical, but I don't think so. I think most successful CEOs completely understand. Yes, it takes hustle. Yes, you have to get up and do something. You know, do, do the professional athletes that I'm talking about, do they just think themselves into being the best in the world? Of course not. But do they just go out and hit a million balls a day and become the greatest in the world? No, there's a duality to it. You have to believe it and you have to follow through with it. But the belief has to come first. You have to get up in the morning and think the thoughts that you need to think before you get out of bed. You can't get out of bed and think it's gonna be a terrible day and then go out and expect to have a good day. You have to get up, tell yourself what a great day it's gonna be, even if there's part of you that doesn't feel like it's gonna be a good day. But I think how a lot of law of attraction followers fall short is that they forget about the internal belief system that it has to follow with a emotional system. The most important part of the law of attraction isn't the positive affirmation. Those will fall short if you don't have the feeling that comes with it. You've got to sit in the space and force yourself to have the either visualizations or the imagination time that you need, the daydreaming that you need, whatever you've got to do to get into the feeling space. And it sounds ridiculous as a grown mm -hmm. adult to tell yourself, are you telling me, Dr. Shannon, that I've got to sit in my car or lay in bed and pretend until I feel good. You are gosh dang right, if I, if I could say more I would, mm -hmm. that that's exactly what I'm telling you to do. When you see athletes before a game with their headphones on, looking into their locker, what do you think they're doing? They are daydreaming. They are winning. They are running a highlight reel, dancing in their heads, winning. They are daydreaming. Just like the little kid that's outside <coughs> shooting baskets, in his mind, he's LeBron. They're daydreaming. All great athletes have daydreamed their way into winning the Stanley Cup, into winning the World Series. Ask them, how many times have you won the World Series? 50,000 times, haven't you? Yes, I have. And now it feels like a dream. Why? Because I've dreamed it so many times. Guarantee you, they've dreamed their way into success. Every CEO has these impersonation panic moments because they think, oh my God, somebody's gonna find out I am not supposed to be here because they daydream their way there. If you're not spending 10 minutes a day, you're screwing up. That's how you get to the next level. Daydream yourself into a rush of emotion. Then go do what you gotta do. Don't get out of bed. Don't start your day until you do that. It's the most important part of your day. Everyone who's done anything great has figured that out. And don't listen to the people that tell you you're ridiculous and a daydreamer. Everybody that's ever done anything great is exactly that. Yeah. Those people need to go away. Get away from those people until you've done something great and then you can say, see this? There's your daydream right there. I think that's that's absolutely spot on. I mean, I, I believe 100% in that. One of my favorite stories behind that, you may have heard this, but um, Roy Disney, Walt Disney's brother, was being interviewed one time and you know Walt Disney actually died before Disney World was finished, right? And one of the reporters said, hey Roy, isn't it terrible that Walt never got to see this? And he said, you're sadly mistaken. He saw this before any of us. And so it was just, it was awesome. So when you when you say all that, I, I believe in that, right? I'm, I'm, an, I'm a student of that game, I get it. 
for our listeners that maybe they aren't part of the game, um, how do they become part of that game? How do they change their thinking from the negative thoughts to the positive thoughts? Because it's easier for you and I to sit here and talk about that, but very difficult to do it. How do you do that? You can start by trying an experiment. See how you feel with five minutes of daydreaming in a positive way. And then see how you feel after five minutes of worrying. After five minutes of worrying, go pick up a five pound bag of potatoes and see how easy that is. And then after five minutes of positive daydreaming about whatever your wildest, most amazing daydream would be, go pick up that same five pound bag of potatoes. See what you notice. See how much easier it is to pick up the five pound bag. If you are lucky enough to know somebody who can do muscle testing, have someone muscle test you after those two experiments. If you are a little more open to it, there's some great books that you can pick up. There's a book called QE2 about energy experiments and it's great for the naysayers. I I had to prove it to myself. I thought law of attraction was BS to the nth degree. There's also a movie called The Secret that you can download and watch. I, I, I watched that movie with my dad um, when I was trying to tell him about this new fandangled stuff I was doing and I thought he was going to look at me like I'd lost my mind and we sat and watched it together in silence and then when I was done watching it I looked over and I'm like so what'd you think and he looks at me like did you not know all that before? He goes, how'd you think I do what I do? How'd you think Uncle Stan did what he did? Of course I know that. Is that what you're trying to tell me this whole time? And and that just kind of proves to me like, what am I afraid of coming out and like talking about this stuff? Everybody that I grew up with knows all this stuff. Like, I think I just stumbled on some new stuff here. Like my dad looked at me like I was telling him one plus one is two. And then I just felt like, oh, whew. Now I don't have to tell you, okay, I'm going down into the clubhouse and doing this stuff. So right. <laughs> that, yeah. that he didn't like that much. Right. That. Well, I think it's great. And also, if you YouTube Jason Day and watch the golfer Jason Day's pre-shot ritual, it's amazing. He shuts his eyes, literally stands behind the ball, breathes, and then goes and hits a shot. And he's daydreaming about what, what the thing's getting ready to do. And that's why he's maybe number one, number two in the world right now. So... I want to talk more of some stories about your dad and old Uncle Stan later. Um, I'm also mesmerized by this Vince Lombardi trophy sitting here. Oh, yeah. That's kind of cool. We'll hear about that in a second. But tell us about being soft, right? I I heard you talk sometime in an interview one time, and you said, I can't be soft. I'm not a yes ma'am, right? We got to be strong. And so for those people that are in the business world and they need to be strong, their beliefs must be greater than the doubts, all that stuff. Tell me more about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess – I've always struggled with being soft. I, I, I guess I'm maybe a bit of an alpha. I, I have always equated being soft with being weak. And that's not true. I'm wrong. And, you know, God is funny because he gave me five little girls and one boy. And they're teaching me all about being soft. The funny thing is my presentation is very fake, if I would be authentic. I'm actually very soft. And anybody that knows me will tell you that right away. I've grown up in a alpha world and I have to walk through uh, locker rooms and I have to stand on sidelines and I have to be hard. My job is soft. My life is about the mix between hard and soft. We need to understand what's the right time to present in a hard way and what's the right time to present in a soft way and what's the right time to do that to our internal self because I know I'm 
much softer with people than I am with myself. I'm much too hard on myself. And I think when you become a parent, you learn an awful lot about who you are. And I've learned a lot about my perfectionism as I've seen my children struggle with it too. And I don't want them to have to be struggling with perfectionism. So I have had to be a good example for them. That has helped me to be softer. And the funniest thing about working with professional athletes is they have the best BS radar in the whole world. <laughs> I can be as tough as I want. They all know how soft I am. They know I love them and I will always be there for them and I will always protect them and keep them safe. But they also know why I have to be tough and why that external toughness is there. And they respect that. I respect the fact that I am a product of my environment and I am thankful that my dad raised me to be tough, but I know that all that softness inside is my mom. But I also know my dad is a big softy too and anybody that knows my dad knows that he's got the biggest heart in the world too. So I guess that's where that comes from. Absolutely. I, I All I know about your dad is just that's what I grew up listening to, right? I love your dad's voice. I can hear it right now in my head. So, um, you know, when you talk about the circuit of success, we've we really talked a lot about attitude. I always say you choose every day your attitude when you wake up. So everything you said about before you get out of bed, yeah. I do that every day. Yeah. And some days I want to do it, some days I don't, but I got to train myself to do it. So the next uh, circuit is beliefs. Um, and so what are your beliefs today, but also what are your beliefs that if you wish you could rewind 10 or 15 years and tell that Dr. Aaron Shannon... What would those uh, beliefs be? It's dangerous, I think, to go back and change anything from the past because then you never know what you would change about the future. I've always had problems with trust. You know, we're just always taught never to trust anybody because when you grow up in the world of athletics, that's just the message you get. Sure. Um, so I think I would maybe like to be more trusting in, in a lot of ways, but I don't think I would change anything about my life because I wouldn't be exactly where I am today and I have a, a big belief that you are exactly where you need to be and you grow out of the hard times. So even though I didn't want to go through a lot of the hard times I went through, I know I needed to go through them because I did grow out of the hard times. Um, if I had to go back, I would enjoy everything more. I wouldn't be so hard on myself. I wouldn't be so driven to get to the next stage of everything. I would be more in the present moment I would try to do the things that I try to teach people to do now. Be present and be gentle on yourself. And so those are things that I think I still struggle with. Don't try to be perfect. Don't try to please some unrelenting scale of perfection. And for me, it's always been perfection in trying to help other people, trying to help my patient. I've always had this drive to learn more almost like this obsessive need to know what else, what else, what else, and never be satisfied like you've learned enough today. Well, I think that part of the belief, I always talk about it's you know, belief in yourself, belief in, in a, you know, higher spirit, and all the stuff we've been talking about today. So I absolutely answered the question. And I think activities too, we, we touched on this earlier, but if you just had to boil it down to one or two things that a, that a business person needs to do today, and maybe you're going to go back to that thing in the morning before they get out of bed. But anything even physically they need to be doing, is it, is it meditation? Is it journaling? Is it uh, goal planning every single day? What is it? Everybody has some kind of practice that they do to, to try to better themselves. Some people think it's exercise. Some people think it's praying. Some people think it's yoga. I think whatever you're doing, having 10 minutes of self-reflection, 10 minutes is a long time. 
some people can only tolerate two minutes. 10 minutes of quiet to let whatever needs to come to the forefront come to the forefront is literally intolerable to most people. And there's a reason for that. If you can start with two minutes and work up to five minutes, that's gonna tell you what you need to do for the rest of the stuff. So that might indicate to you that you need to exercise. That might indicate to you that you need to do community service, that you need to clean up your finances, that you need to declutter your home, that you need to work on your marriage. But if you don't take time to figure it out, you're gonna be running around either doing the easiest thing or doing the thing that someone else told you you need to do. It's the self-reflection quiet time. It's painful to do, but that's where the inner wisdom is gonna come that's gonna give you the prescription for what you do need. And maybe it changes every day, but how do you know what you really need until you sit and listen? Yeah, couldn't agree more. A lot of game changer ideas here today. So this has been great. So now if we can, a couple things. You've got the Vince Lombardi trophy sitting here in our the room we're sitting in, all this sports memorabilia. The people that know me know I'm a huge sports guy. So tell us about the Vince Lombardi trophy. I know, but tell our listeners about it, who your husband is. And then can you tell us a great Stan Musial, Mike Shannon story? I really don't have sports memorabilia in the house at all. We're in my treatment room today. Right. All the things in my treatment room, it's kind of a feng shui room and it's, it's a, it's an interesting little room. It's too bad. We don't have a camera in here. Um, it's half, half like a shrink room with a little couch and a chair and then half kind of looks like a, I don't know, maybe like a massage Ooh. therapy room, sort of got like a massage table. There's just some interesting stuff in here. So this is where I do my treatment for my athletes. And uh, and there there is a Lombardi trophy in here. It, it is. So my husband is Greg Williams. He's the defensive coordinator of the Browns now. And that was from the Saints Super Bowl. Um, so it is up there at the request of some of my NFL guys for Kamoja. I like it. So they will come and some of them will touch it. Some of them will not different ways of beings, different superstitions. Um, there's some there's some Super Bowl balls in here. There's some World Series baseballs. There's all kinds of stuff in different places that different people like to either touch or not touch, depending yeah. on their little superstitions. They may so, want to take home. Uh, yeah. Nope. Nobody <laughs> takes stuff home. Else they'd be, someone else would go and find right. them and say, where'd that ball? Right. Yeah. So on the, the Mike Shannon, Steam Usual story, let's talk about some of that stuff. Gosh, I don't even know where to start. Here's an interesting one. My wedding ring is an aquamarine, and that is my birthstone. But when I was a little girl, Aunt Lil, so Stan's wife Lil, had this big square aquamarine ring. And every time I'd see Aunt Lil, before I'd even get up to her, she'd take her ring off and like toss it to me. She's She was a character. My mom and Lil and um, Mary Shandy's, Uncle Red's wife, Mary, the three of them were characters. And Mary Lou Herzog, the four of them oh, really gosh. were the four. They're amazing women. And the guys are obviously amazing, yeah. but the women were amazing. So whenever I'd see Aunt Lil, she, I just loved the color of that ring. I never wore dresses. And so my mom always thought it was very interesting that that was like the one girly thing that I would want to see. And I would look at the ring and I would, I would just always look at the ring and want to touch it. And I'd put it on my finger 
and then I'd take it off and, and they would all be very amazed that that was the one girly thing I always liked. I was literally the little girl that I would never wear a dress. I would cry <laughs> and cry if I had to put it on. Right. For my first communion, it was a nightmare. I, had, I wore shorts <laughs> under my dress. Right. Okay, it was bad. So my husband, Greg, when he was little, he would pretend to be Mike Shannon and Bob Gibson and Stan Musial playing baseball wow. out in the backyard. At one point when we were first dating, we were all out telling old stories about when we lived at, near them at spring training and they, he would fly kites and my nephews would call him the kite man, didn't know who he was. Just, you know, fun, fun stories. And Greg was just kind of sitting there like, oh my gosh, you yeah, know. Yeah. And, uh, and they told this story about the ring. And how, you know, it was so funny that I liked this ring because it was the only girly thing I liked. And Greg was joking about, you know, she still never wears dresses and right. stuff. And she always dresses like a boy. And some of the players were laughing and joking about it. And so when it came to buy me a wedding ring, he looked up pictures of her ring. And he got a ring that looks very similar to wow. Aunt Lil's big square turquoise ring. And so I just think that's a really cool intergenerational story about how some communities have such strong genetic ties and our families, we don't have many friends outside of us because mm -hmm. we live together, we eat together, we travel together. So for Greg coming into this little weird interbred subculture of us as a baseball family and the stories that we share all these years growing up together. I thought it was a really cool gesture cool. that he did. And, and when he showed them, they thought it was pretty cool too. Yeah, so awesome. that was kind of a fun story. Well, that's very cool. And, and, and I, you know this, but I think it's important to say, you know, the, the city of St. Louis would not be what it is today without your dad and Jack Buck and Bob Gibson and Whitey Herzog and Stan Musial, all of them. So it's, it's really cool to get to hear those stories. So thanks oh, for thanks. sharing. Oh, and um, anything else today you want to close with? Where can our listeners find more from Dr. Aaron Shannon? Well, I do have my website. It's uh, DrAaronShannon.com, D-R-E-R-I-N-S-H-A-N-N-O-N.com. I'm, I'm the worst business person in the world, by the way. So <laughs> my sister, Pat, always tells me you're the worst in yeah. business. But I'm a healer, I think, by trade, not, not necessarily a business person, but... Um, I appreciate the opportunity for you to come over and, and talk, and it, it was great connecting, and I appreciate that about St. Louis. We certainly love St. Louis and love the city, and um, it's been a great life living here, and um, it's always so amazing to connect to people in St. Louis because we all seem to know each other somehow. Such a one degree, two degree of separation, so thanks for coming. It was great connecting. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the Circuit of Success podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Tune in next week for another episode of the Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.